on the record on news talk Yes, this is Kieran Cuddihy on News Talks on the record with you until one o'clock today. Five three one zero six is the text number that will cost you thirty cent, or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cuddihy. With me in studio today, picking their way through today Sunday papers, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with TV Three, Terry Prone, chair of the Communications Clinic, and Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUIG. You're all very welcome to the program. Morning, Kieran. Look, before we even get into the front pages, uh, who watched it? The Royal Wedding. Hands up. I thought you were going to ask about the FA Cup final. Oh, <laughs> so, come on, come on. You, <laughs> actually, you definitely watched I, the I did wedding. watch it because it was on TV3 in Glorious High Definition, so why wouldn't I? Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's harmless. Like I, I, I understand to a point people who are saying it's not for me or because they think that it's anti-Republican or they think that it's servile or West Brit. But it's, you know, when it's all just Serena Williams and the Beckhams showing up and Amal and George Clooney, is it not just basically a society affair? And the one thing that I concluded is, in fact, you know, those those channels somewhere up on the sky box, the Virgin box, that basically just show, um, say yes to the dress 24 hours a day. You'd, have, you'd make a killing if you just had a TV channel that was just weddings. Not even just the picking of wedding dress, just weddings. You just, just get to you look, just, just, watch just get a gawk at guests and saying, "Oh, look at the, the rig out now! Look well, how they present so, some themselves." Some parishes around will do that. There's a lot, a lot of parishes around now have a, a little camera set up because of people who've emigrated, and you can you can check in. Mm. And doesn't quite the, have the red the carpet weddings. vibes, though. It doesn't. It doesn't have the same <laughs> celebrity appeal. Did you watch it, Terry? No, I didn't, and I I have to say that I've been kind of converted because I had zero interest. I wasn't even cynical about it. I just had zero interest in it. Which which is difficult to maintain because for the last week in Ireland, it was just like an infection. Um, and then, particularly this morning, most of the papers have supplements, kind of 24 mm. pages of the pictures. I swear to God, they're magic. They really are magic. The The dress looks absolutely wonderful. It is so classically simple. It is so Givenchy. It's so gorgeous. And the other pictures of moments like when he turns to her and says, you look amazing, um, are oddly moving. They're oddly moving. And it seems to have been pretty damn perfect start to finish. And I found it evocative of... A real sense of fair dues, hope they're happy, it's a beautiful day, they had a beautiful day, rather than the easy cynicism I expected myself to drum up. You'll be an easy cynic now, Larry, won't you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm, I'm cynical. I, I just, uh, I just have no interest. It's not an, it's not a Republican defense. It's not hatred for the royal family or anything like that. It's just, to me, it's kind of fancy clothes and fancy cars. I have no interest. It just bores me to death. Yeah, what about it's like you've your own royal family over in your part of the world anyway, the Kennedys and Cameron. You'd tune in to watch that, wouldn't you? A Kennedy wedding? Probably not. No, I just, again, you know, I, I just, these things don't move me one way or the other. Well, they move plenty of people because they're featured on the front page of every single paper today, including the Sunday Business Post. I was wondering, I thought they might be the ones not to do it, but no, they, they cracked. There they are, up on top, Megan and Harry uh, on the front page uh, of the Business Post. And for people who were giving out, you know, that RT were showing it, they were showing it because the new people would watch it the reason they show anything absolutely Um, and and nobody is as good as the British are when it comes to the panoply and the horses and there was even one horse that got so nervous that it became a talking point on Twitter (laughs) everybody was that would this horse get its rider off its back and fair dues to the rider who was holding it all together yeah they do it well they do it well Uh, look like I said they're, they're 
photos are featured in the front pages uh, of all today's papers. I'll run you through the other headlines, though, on the papers. The Sunday Independent leads with Emma's fury at Meet Leo Plan. Cancer victim Emma Vic Mahuna, this was, uh, has reacted angrily to a proposal that she would meet the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar and help choreograph uh, the cervical check scandal. Uh, this wasn't a proposal from the Taoiseach's office. In fact, the Taoiseach says he's disgusted by the proposal. It was from a publican, Sean O'Connor, who has in the past campaigned on behalf of Fine Gael. A story as well on the front page about uh, the murder investigation of Anna Kriegel. Boy tells Gardaí of Anna's last hours. Uh, the Sunday Business Post leads with coat rails and clocking in. Health officials resisting move to a lavish 100 million euro HQ. We'll definitely come back to the story. It is a great one. It is a dispute over the location of coat rails and where staff clock in. And it's holding up the Department of Health move, move to a plush new central Dublin office uh, where they've already paid about €8 million Euro in rent, uh, despite not occupying the building. Uh, the Sunday Times urban surge set to carry the day for repeal vote. Support for a yes vote in the abortion referendum has risen 5 points to 52% with the surge in cities and larger towns. This is according to their BNA B and A poll in the Sunday Times and the Mail on Sunday sealed with a kiss there they are inside pull that's your pull out that you're talking about <laughs> Harry, isn't it yeah. uh, smears uh, smear, smears are on holidays TD series says head of cervical cancer hit squad takes vacation and avoids questioning at the PAC. Before anyone is wondering, by the way, that 24-page pull-out in the middle of the uh, Mail on Sunday, it is not just the entire transcript of that American preacher's uh, <laughs> like 45-minute <laughs> homily, which I'm sure would fill up quite a few pages all by itself, but no, they've managed to get other content. I, I, a, few, a few of the royals seem to be kind of wriggling in their seats a little bit during that. Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't sure how much they enjoyed it. Well, I, I think m- many of us would have looked at it in the way that you look at a broadcaster when you're in, when you have very tight timings and you know you have to get out in two and a half minutes and you suddenly realise this person is taking no signals and has no sense of time and it's going to go on for about another 10 minutes and I'm going to run into the news and oh dear God yeah I needed a good editor as my editor just put in my ear there that's exactly <laughs> what they needed so someone needed to wrap him up uh, look uh, as people would have heard there there's plenty of, of coverage as well on the front pages and inside all the papers of the referendum less than a week to go on Friday people will be taking to the polls three and a half days really of campaigning proper on the airways and everything is what that means because of the morat- moratorium kicking in on Thursday at noon um, uh, Gav I suppose I might ask you to, to talk us through the business post mm. Uh, first because they have um, their own polling today they and do. then they have this other uh, interpretation of the polling figures. Might explain yeah, exactly they, what I'm talking they've about. They've effectively they've asked two questions. They've asked the usual question of how will you intend to vote which is the standard, standard question that you would be asked in every opinion poll and, and this just for, for way of background I believe by BAI rules we have to tell people exactly when the polling was who did all of that. So this is a poll carried out by Red Sea. It was sampled between uh, Thursday of the week before last and Wednesday of the week just gone so that's May 10th to the 16th in a margin of error of around 3%. And when they asked people in the straightforward question, how are you going to vote? Uh, 56% of people said yes, 27% of people said no, and 14% remained undecided, which, if you were to filter out those undecideds, is effectively a two-to-one lead for the yes mm. side, and it's quite positive news. But they've also asked one other question, which they did experiment with three years ago, which is a slightly sideways way of looking at it, because... You and I, here, and we live in, you know, perhaps in media bubbles or people who are posters who might live in polling bubbles who don't necessarily get to speak to everyone on the ground or get as true a feel for the campaign as we might like to have. Uh, so we might base our personal gut reaction on how it's going to go based on what we see and what we hear. But that might only be a small amount of what is seen mm-hmm. and heard. 
So what Red Sea have done is ask everyone answering their questions to say, well, based on what you've seen and heard, irrespective of how you're voting, how do you think it's going to go anyway? So that you get this massive, you know, mashed together sample of just people's gut feelings as to how it's going to go. And the result of that question is yes, 56, no, 44. And what's interesting about that question is that when they asked exactly the same question three years ago ahead of the marriage referendum, the people correctly predicted 62 to 38 in that manner. So if you take this as gospel or as being some sort of very innate wisdom, they call it the wisdom of crowds, which is an, an economics term, but there, so it is anyway, that that would effectively then be a prediction of how the outcome will be. 56% yes, 44% no. Larry, the, the, I suppose that the talk, as people have been following the polls, has been that uh, the, the, the it, there would inevitably be a tightening in the race that it would be up to the no side to convert those don't knows into no's, into solid no's, mm-hmm. and the soft yeses into no's, uh, into don't knows and then no's, if you put it that way. Um, and they, I suppose, will look at that figure, the, the wisdom of crowds is the figure maybe they'll focus on, the 44%, mm-hmm. which is is, is uh, fairly helpful for their campaign. But the, the headline figure, 27%, no, it, it doesn't seem like they've moved the dial a huge degree am I right? Yeah I mean I think the, the this poll I think for for the reasons Gavin outlined I mean it is a little bit older it is uh, it seems to have been taken prior to the debate uh, on Monday which is widely perceived to be have been a victory for the no side so it doesn't take that into account. Uh, there certainly has been tightening I think if you look at the Irish Times poll last Thursday uh, which when you take out the undecideds I think it was 5842 and I think that the no side will have taken some encouragement from that, uh, particularly because uh, I think if you look back to something like the the marriage referendum, for instance, where uh, the polling on that, and again, I, I appreciate that they're two different issues, but the polling on that was somewhere about 8 or 9% out. That is that the no side on the, in the marriage referendum actually uh, was 8 or 9 points stronger on the day of the vote uh, than they were in the poll. Uh, so I think the no side will take some comfort for the, from that. That all having been said, Uh, I just don't think there has been enough movement uh, to date. Uh, And I think the final days for the no campaign really are all going to be about uh, that group identified uh, who who say they're voting yes, but still are very uneasy uh, about 12 weeks. And that will be the question that the no side has to continually ask uh, in the remaining days. Is there enough time for that? The the week before last, maybe it was at Pat Lee, he was calling the week just gone moving week. This was it. This is when it had to happen if it was going to happen happen. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, it, it may well be too late. And again, one of the things that came out of the Irish Times poll was that uh, our, our, almost everyone or a very a very high number of people uh, are pretty much set in how they're going to vote, which you would expect uh, at this stage. But however, uh, again, I think in some quarters, this has been portrayed as a really binary question. That is, it's yes or no, you're pro-life or you're pro-choice. Uh, I think that the issue of the legislation is looming in everyone's minds. Uh, and I think that it's it, it's a trickier question um, than than it might appear at first glance, and I think again uh, that's where if there is going to be a come from behind uh, victory for no, that's where it's going to be. It's going to be on moving some of those people who are yes but deeply uneasy about twelve weeks. Uh, Terry, some of the criticism of the yes campaign has been that they haven't wanted to focus on that. Tw- they knew the twelve week issue was tricky for some, so they just made it really about repeal. You know, this is this is about repeal. Don't get bogged down in what comes after the no side I suppose quite rightly have have tried to introduce that into the argument was that a wise decision to to, to leave it to try and I suppose ignore that as an issue or should they have dealt with us more head on 
The only way to answer that is after uh, the event, if mm. they win. Um, my instinct is that the yes side have managed their campaign badly up to very recently. They have been conceptual. Um, they have talked. They haven't talked of rights, which was wise, but they have talked of health in a way that hasn't made a whole hell of a lot of sense. Whereas the no side have gone for the emotion. How do you mean, explain the, that? They've talked about health care and left it up very often to the people listening or watching to supply the illustration of what they were actually talking about. The no side gives you the illustration straight away as to what they're talking about. However, in the last week, it seems to me that the yes side are moving away from the conceptual and the abstract, even to one of the most annoying things in the yes side for me has been this thing of it's your daughter, your wife, uh, your sister, which I find a throwback to the days when we only mattered because we belonged to a man. That has changed radically and the posters and everything else are talking now about someone you love needs your vote. That's a radical shift. Is that and not, uh, Terry, then, sorry to interrupt. Is that not part of the difficulty that you always have when you're trying to sell a referendum? Because the no side, by definition, is always the status quo. So people already know what the current situation is. The no side doesn't have to portray this image of, of life as it currently is because everyone knows what that is. So the yes side is always going to have a little bit more difficulty trying to paint a picture of what its proposed world would look like because you are always asking people to take a slight leap of faith into the unknown. It wasn't a big problem with the equal marriage referendum. What we saw there was couples, was young men, young women saying, this is my partner, I love him or her. It was real, it was grandparents, it was very much talking about exactly what you're on about. This is what it will look like. This is what you shouldn't be afraid of. Whereas there was no, any of the no side on that one were at a huge disadvantage. What I think is interesting and what I don't think any opinion poll, although that thing of picking up the prediction of how others will vote is very, very clever. But I still don't think that the full truth of the secret no voter Mm. has been captured because I have been astonished at the number of young people who have indicated, well, they're thinking about it. And when you push them a little, you realize you're not thinking about it. You're deeply uncomfortable and you're not going to vote yes. But you're not going to tell me that you're not going Mm. to vote yes in case I give you trouble over it. Larry, that argument that, you know, it was easy in the in the marriage equality campaign to say, look, this is what it will look like. And it was two smiling, happy people enjoying their wedding day or enjoying life together. That's easy to do, I suppose, because that's something to be celebrated. Or there's certainly for a lot of people, you know, happiness, love, mm-hmm. <laughs> a, a, a nice settled life is to be celebrated by most people. Um, it, it's harder to do in this campaign, isn't it? Because I suppose, look, what you can you can do is exactly as Terry's saying is you can explain exactly what it's going to be like and don't be afraid of it. This is what it is. But still, the picture isn't a celebration. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I have uh, a certain sympathy, politically speaking, for the yes side in this mm-hmm. instance. They're selling a much harder proposition than the yes side was in the marriage equality referendum. Uh, the reality, whether we like it or not, I think if we look at international experience, is that more uh, Irish unborn children are going to be aborted in the wake of this referendum. That is the reality. Uh, and that's a tricky one to sell politically, uh, I think, in a, in a wide variety of ways. Uh, now, I would have issues, and I wrote a piece on Slugger tool during the week about the issues I would have have uh, with how both sides have conducted this campaign. Uh, I think that the the no side's continuing statement that uh, you cannot trust politicians. Ronan Mullen even said, I'm a politician. You can't trust politicians uh, to make law. Uh, I think that's a fundamentally very dangerous line of reasoning to take people down. While it might be shrewd in the short term, politically, uh, I think in the longer term, it says something very dangerous about democracy, uh, which I think most of us would say is the best system uh, of a bad lot. On the flip side, and I I admitted having some sympathy for the yes side, uh, but it goes to some where I would find fault with the yes side, uh, and it goes to something Terry said a minute ago, which is peop- the silent no vote, and people who are in many instances afraid uh, to say that they are no, or that they have a different perspective about abortion, or they are opposed to a liberal abortion regime, and that's some of the, the othering that I think that the yes side has done in this campaign, and I appreciate the history, and I appreciate all the things that drive uh, some people to feel the way that they do on this issue, but uh, I think when you say that uh, we're about a more compassionate nation, we're about supporting women, uh, I think implicit in some of that messaging is that people who take a different perspective are not. Uh, and I think that that's unfair, and I think that that's where the Yes campaign has gone off the rails as well. Uh, I'm sure you want to move on, Kieran, but just uh, an observation that I made on, on the way in, that I was passing the latest uh, round of Vote No posters up on some lampposts on the way in, and it seems that their argument for the next week, and this harks back to how do you win over the undecideds, mm. uh, and it's a very simple three-word thing, as, as Terry said, very succinct, concise messaging. Uh, it's too extreme just three words it's too extreme and it's it's an interesting tactic because firstly it almost seems to be something of a concession that perhaps mm-hmm. the uh, yeah. if, if yeah. it was a less extreme proposition that yes. perhaps they might be yeah. prepared to back it but nonetheless that is going to be their closing argument yeah. for the next four days if you're uneasy about this you know you might get another chance further down the line but this regime is too extreme and it's interesting that the the um the Sunday Business Post poll has also been asking people how do they feel about 12 weeks and so on. Yeah. And support for 12 weeks has always stayed just a little bit over 50%, 51 in January, 52 now. There was a post with, though, back in January, 27%, now up to 34 So that if there is some space to be won in there, it is people who think that, although the eighth as it stands may be too restrictive, that the proposed regime goes a little bit too far. And that could be the winning or losing of it, bearing in mind that this poll is, is partly two weeks old. So I suppose given that we have, what did I say, three and a half days really of of uh, broadcasting mm-hmm. uh, to, to be done on this and um, four days really uh, still knocking on the doors, uh, what can we say? Anything different in the next week, Larry? Um, no, I mean, I, I've said what I think the, the closing arguments on both sides, yeah. but I think Gavin's point is crucial. I think implicit in the no messaging has to be that we can do better than this legislatively in terms of a proposal, in terms of what might be there, that this is a step too far. Terry? Um, I suspect that the yes side will cop on and do more of the sort of thing that's uh, one of today's papers, and I've got a blank on which one it is, has Nell McCafferty, oddly, writing about nursing a friend when she was much younger who had um, tried an abortion on herself. And it's that kind of sense of that at the moment there is a sense among no voters that, yeah, it's pretty awful that you might have to go to England, but you can go to England. Whereas when in America they were fighting for their rights on this one, 
it was, you can't go anywhere. You'll do it to yourself and you may die. And that's not now the the proposition in this country. So the yes side are going to have to major on the emotions of the issue. And the no side have nothing to do but stress, as Gavin so rightly said, this thing of too extreme. Mm-hmm. You, you, you can't in conscience go there. Yeah, look, that that's how it's all going to play out, I suppose, in the next few days. It was interesting, I thought we heard from Gail in the news headlines, uh, Savita Halepanavar's parents mm-hmm. uh, this morning uh, coming out uh, advocating for a, a yes vote uh, in the referendums. Uh, Gail played that clip mm-hmm. a little bit earlier. Um, politicians, those uh, on the yes side, I suppose, would be breathing some sigh of relief if last week was going to be moving week. There hasn't been huge movement, Gav. Well, that, that's that's the, what the, the fistful of salt you have to bear in mind for these, because there are two polls this morning, yes, two of the Sunday papers. They're both very positive, but they're both largely taken quite a bit ago, because the Business Post one that we've been talking about sampled between May the 10th and 16th, bearing in mind that the big TV debate on Clare Byrne, which might have manipulated people, or rather influenced people, excuse me, uh, was on the 14th. Um, the Sunday Times has an even healthier poll for the yes side 52 plays 24 but that was sampled between May the 13th and 15th so only the last day of polling was the aftermath of that debate so that it's still taken in something of a vacuum the most recent poll oddly enough that we still have is the one that we saw in the Irish Times a couple of days ago uh, which was sampled one day before and one day after the Clareburn debate that had 44 plays 32 and uh, personally I would think that with the way that the prevailing winds are going I think that will be closer to the truth come Saturday afternoon The Irish Times as well had a political poll that made for more grim reading than the Sunday papers did for the government Mm, Yeah the the idea that the uh, the government satisfaction was now beginning to plummet as a result of the cervical check uh, disaster which appears not to have been borne out by the Sunday Business Post poll which I suppose means that you have to always take these 3% margins of error as being very crucial. Uh, but no doubt people will be uh, very enthused by the, um, or some people will be very enthused um, by the poll in the Sunday Times, which has made Sinn Féin now the second most popular party ahead of Fianna Fáil, which is a five-point bonus for Sinn Féin within two months. Also puts Mary Lou Macdonald within one point of Leo Varadkar in terms of approval ratings. And one might think that if the referendum were to go against Micheál Martin because of the amount of stock that he has placed in his advocacy for the yes side, that if the no side were to win in the day and Micheál Martin seems like he's led his party towards the wrong direction while suddenly Mary Lou Macdonald is, is beginning to strike more chords with the public than he is then I wonder if we might be seeing moving weeks of other sorts I just thought uh, going back to um, uh, Judge Charlton's question to Dave Taylor um, more or less this wasn't a great smear campaign was it um, <laughs> I would have thought that the notion of Micheál Martin leading his party towards um, a yes vote was kind of questionable. Um, the majority of them, it seems to me, certainly mm. the more vocal of them, are sitting firmly in the no camp. So it may not do as much damage, whichever one comes in, as might logically happen. Larry, final word on this? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think uh, Michal Martin's position on this is driven by the fact that he knows the party has a Dublin problem. And I think that that's why he's, I, I think he senses what Gavin said a minute ago, and I think that's why he's so visible canvassing uh, throughout the different Dublin constituencies, because he knows uh, how much is riding on this. And I think he personally uh, has a significant fear of uh, a, Shin, uh, a Mary Lou MacDonald-led Sinn Féin. All right, look, Gavin Riley, Terry Prohn, Larry Dominey staying with me in studio. More to come after this short break. On the record, on, the record. on News Talk.
Yes, this is News Talk. This is On The Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Gavin Riley, political correspondent with TV3. Terry Prone, chair of the Communications Clinic and Larry Donnelly, law lecturer at NUIG, are with me in studio. And when we were running through the front pages a, a little bit earlier, the front page of the Sunday Business Post caught our eye. It is a great story by Ian Guider, formerly of this parish. Coat rails and clocking in, health officials resisting move to lavish 100 million euro HQ. A dispute over the location of coat rails and staff clocking in facilities is holding up the Department of health move to a plush new central Dublin office. This is the move from Hawkins House up to the old Bank of Ireland building as I understand uh, up on Bagot Street and uh, the coat rails are too far from their seats Gav. Um, so it would seem that the uh, among other problems that the, coat rails, catch a chill. that the coat rails are too far from their seats so that they won't be able to supervise and make sure that their coat is uh, kept safely that not someone else some other person presumably working in the Department of Health might not steal their coat on the way out yeah they have uh, very low opinion of uh, their colleagues there's also there's a, a slightly uh, I believe there's a, diff- a slight difficulty with the fact that it's so relatively removed from the city centre because Hawkins House is so slap bang right beside the Liffey right now that getting out is a little further away um, also the fact oh, that hold on bag Street is removed from the city centre. Is well, that really the if, argument if you've, got, if you've gotten used to having a bus stop or a lift stop right outside your building, then it actually is, is a little <laughs> bit removed. Uh, but another thing too is also clocking in that the facilities around um, how clocking in will be governed in future means that staff who are currently based in Hawkins House, which by the by is a hellhole, it is a dilapidated like just awful awful building where once I believed a few years ago they tried to wash some of the windows as a, as a desperate attempt to try and boost staff morale and some of the windows began to fall out of the building such is the decrepit nature of that structure um, but seemingly the, the staff who are currently working there the way that they're signing in facilities work that they're able to do so at their desks or at their entrance and it means then that they are able to build up a certain amount of flexi time that they can take back afterwards which many private sector workers are able to do as well but if they move to this particular building then the way in which they sign in will be uh, differently affected and they might not be able to get back the same flexi time which they are legitimately working up all of which has effectively meant that the former Bank of Ireland headquarters on Bagot Street has been lying idle for several years the state has paid rent upwards of 8 million euro uh, in preparation for the Department of Health moving its 400 odd staff over there and as of yet they have failed to do so they would rather stay in a building quite literally falling down because at least they can see where their coats are Yes, one Larry Goodman owns the building now actually that former Bank of Ireland building As the clocking in though it, their issue seems to be that you have to clock in at the front door. You can clock in at the front door at the moment and it would be changed to closer to their desk so that five minute walk or possibly you know when they go for a coffee or have a chat with people before they get to their desk they don't get paid for. If they have to go and hang up their coats miles away that's going to add to the time. Take all their valuables out of their pockets (laughs) of the coats don't leave anything in. I'm quite surprised that they're not running out of Hawkins house right now or are they temporarily in in the bank Um, because I actually would was hauled in years and years ago by the Department of Health. I now forget which administration it was under. And I, it was one of those briefs where you're shaking your head for a long time thinking, I'm missing something here. And eventually I said something like, so folks, you're saying that everybody who works here hates working here because of the building. And you want me to convince them that they should really like working in the building. And they kind of said, yeah, you got it. <laughs> but hang on a second. You can't actually do that. People are not stupid. This is a sick building. Never mind dilapidated. Mm. The minute it was built, it was an awful building. 
Everything was awful about it. The minute you walked into the reception area, you had a sense of impending doom and overwhelming malaise. There was <laughs> no way, way to go to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then you yeah, realise you're in the department. But at least you can sign in and have the five minutes of walk to your desk <laughs> yeah, exactly. where you're feeling that malaise before you sit it down. It was just horrific. And I know that we're being very funny about them being picky about their, their signing in and so forth. They got a right to be picky. Any of them that have worked for a long time in Hawkins House are overdue some pickiness. Um, They have been working in appalling conditions, the sort of conditions that would make you not want to go to work any morning in fairness, actually, just to, to those uh, staff, and, and unless we be accused of, of downplaying some of their concerns, some of their other difficulties are the fact that the new building is very much laid out in an open plan style structure, which means that if people want to have very discreet conversations about health matters, as no doubt they ought to have been having for certain other stories that are in the papers today, um, that they are constrained from doing so because there are fewer cubicles or private offices and that everyone is inclined to work in this open plan atmosphere, which they say they have no problem with in principle, but in practice it does mean that it's a little bit more call centre like and they wouldn't be actually able to dispose of their business in the ways that they currently do which may be fair enough I mean I know from my own few ventures into Hawkins House that there's very few if any open plan areas like that it's all very segmented and cubicalised and everything makes sense that way so no doubt that is a, a serious difficulty and they might be uh, inclined to deserve some, some pickiness as Terry says in that light Larry were you ever struck by falling glass when you are standing outside <laughs> Mulligan's and Pool Bake Street drinking pints looking in Hawkins House How did you know I like Mulligan's? <laughs> uh, uh, no <laughs> look I think that the yeah, the, the probably as Gavin says, there probably are some some legitimate issues here that I think need to be worked through. But I think that this headline in the first few lines, uh, the public perception is going to be very very low of this, especially given uh, all that has unfolded in recent weeks about the HSE. Uh, so I don't think that this story will help uh, these individuals in in light of that. Um, and I suppose just to take it to the lighter side, I think uh, being close to Mulligans, I think is a pretty good place to work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's plenty of pubs in Baggett Street for them as well. Mulligans might lose out. Uh, look. Uh, I suppose turning your attention to uh, I suppose a, a more serious story involving the HSC, plenty of coverage as well of the ongoing uh, cervical screening scandal in in, in the papers today. Um, and a, a few caught my eye that I wanted to talk about. Um, Hugh O'Connell is writing, Terry, in the Sunday Business Post, former Taoiseach calls for a more reliable method of reporting issues to ministers. Mm. This is something that we see that, I suppose, one's information goes into a department or uh, into a minister's office it's impossible to account for where it goes from there or if it crosses his desk or into their email they have to have they seen it it is legitimate I suppose is it to, to, to call for some sort of system whereby they can be held to account for what they've seen I think that what Enda Kenny is pointing to here, and this is an interesting breach with tradition from Enda Kenny because he has been one of those rare Thishig who, once he left, he just stayed out of stuff. This is an administrative issue where in 20 years ago, if you were working with a department, there were a few streams of incoming information few streams. There was telephone, there was Mm. letters. Now there is a multiplicity of streams of stuff, plus a quite different relationship with the public, with activists, with patient organisations, so that you have this incredible variety of stuff coming in. And no minister could stay alive if they paid attention to all of it. It seems to me that Kenny is absolutely right, that you do need to have a system which is rigid, 
to the point of being militaristic that says anything related to that is going to come through you and if you make a judgment that this should go to the minister the minister will see it if you don't you're going to have to stand over it because it's in that sort of area that it seems to me that accountability actually resides rather than in the Oireachtas committee interpretation of accountability which is give me a head yeah we'll, we'll, we'll come back to the Oireachtas committees actually in a moment because that there's a, a few interesting pieces on that not least by Elaine Byrne as well in the business post today but Gav this comments from Enda Kenny was at a book launch uh, yes. I understand mm. uh, during the week um, it did remind me a little bit or it brought to mind Francis Fitzgerald and the emails knocking around and who yes. saw them yeah. and and you know the argument made and quite legitimately made by people then was look there's such a volume of things coming in I can't be expected to read every single email so just to say an email was sent mm. isn't enough yeah what you were talking about in that case was the fact there was an acknowledgement a few days afterwards saying yes. the minister has noted the contents and exactly. that's where it came across but it is, it's absolutely fair that it's, it's impossible to read all the correspondence because you're just drowning in so many things and, and what's interesting I think about what uh, Enda Kenny is getting at there and it's funny that you mentioned just as example is because there are different protocols for different agencies or different departments such as for example if the Garda Commissioner says that there's something that needs to be brought to the attention of the Minister there is a specific clause in law under the Garda Act under which they're supposed to do so it goes to the Secretary General it says I'm invoking this law Mr Secretary General or Ms Secretary General but it tends to be Mr can you please tell uh, the Minister about this particular thing because they need to know about it because Mm. it's a matter of significant public importance and if that principle was carried the same way across every agency where if the HSE had for example a means through which it tells the SecGen to bring something to the department because it has to be done that way or if you know all these other various quangos or various state agencies had that similar means it would be a little bit more discreet that way because you wouldn't be then flying blind in this kind of nefarious situation where someone makes a subjective call that this doesn't deserve to be escalated to ministerial level that you would actually have something written in black and white on the statute books to say if this deserves a minister's attention then you ought to bring it that way and if it doesn't you doesn't because this is what leads us to the the grey situation we have with cervical check where clearly at some point along the line people within the HSE or within the Department of Health said this doesn't need to be escalated to ministerial level, that it made its way as far as the Chief Medical Officer but no further and if somebody had said or if there was a clause in the law somewhere in black and white that said stuff of this significance has to get to the Minister's desk like forget about culture if you were just to put it in black and white, bring this to the Minister then you'd have a culture of it being done and maybe it might lead to a circumstance where heads might roll a bit more often because politicians will make political decisions, not necessarily policy ones but at least you have a situation where you don't have this gargantuan state entity in the HSE spending 13 or 14 billion euro every year and yet the guy who's actually funding it or responsible for its financial management doesn't really know what's going on. Does it suit them a little bit at the moment that I suppose on one side you can say well look I sent the email and I I made them aware and then on the other side as with the politician who maybe is more accountable has that plausible deniability of you know I get there's a well, million emails. Well, I it's, it's good for the politician, but it's not good for the public because mm. if you have an agency like the HSE spending 14 billion euro entrusted with the very simple act of keeping people alive and there is no accountability to the point where the minister who is its accounting officer who is supposed to be able to stand over its spending of money has no idea what policies are being done or why certain things are being stifled or kept from him um, then you have this Frankenstein's monster which is completely incapable of being reined in and it's very interesting and I know this is a slight tangent
imagine now, but um, Susan Mitchell has written a piece on page 14 of the Business Post today about what happened in similar circumstances in the UK, where there was a similar uh, questions raised about their national cervical check programme, where a certain number of people were found to have had abnormalities missed and they went back and misread. And it seems that they took this very uh, cogent example where they were going to absolutely communicate to every patient. There was no doubt about who was going to do it. Communicate to them all. If it resulted in, in people being brought to the course, then so be it, because mm. some negligent things had happened. The key difference, as far as I can see it from what Susan has lined out, is that it was escalated to ministerial level mm. and some health secretary at the top of the tree said this is what we're going to do. Whereas right now we had different levels of middle management, none of whom reported it to the minister, all decided to do different things or all assumed that different things were being done. There was nobody at the top of the tree, which is ultimately what the SecGen and the minister are supposed to be doing. And in Ireland, we're letting ourselves short by not at least giving the guy at the top of the tree the chance to make directions like mm-hmm. that. Larry, I mentioned uh, Elaine Byrne's piece as well on uh, Oireachtas Committees that's in the paper today, the headline with Oireachtas Committees, the political instinct veers towards scoring points rather than getting answers. And Terry touched on this as well. And we've seen that in the last week. I sat down and I watched uh, Kieran Breen, who's the head of the State Claims Agency for the Oireachtas Committee, and he must have answered the same question. 20 times. And he answered it 20 times because each of the politicians wanted to be able to go back to whoever they were accountable to and say, I specifically brought up that issue. Now, the fact that the nine politicians before them had brought it up didn't matter. They're not about accountability. They're about politics. Isn't that the point? Well, I mean, I, I think that's perhaps a, a too sweeping a, a statement to make. I mean, the, there's a very fine line here, I think, between grandstanding and I think the uh, grandstanding and advocacy. Uh, and I think the cynic in each of us, when politicians in, the, in this context uh, make charges and attack uh, people who have made, uh, it would seem, grave mistakes, uh, and there's potential political gain in it, the, the cynic in us says uh, this politician doesn't care about his or her constituents. Really, what they care about uh, being perceived to be doing the right thing uh, and ganging up. And indeed, a lot of commentators have made that point. But on the flip side, however, the reality is uh, politicians, in my view, have a duty to advocate for the people they represent. Uh, And there are an awful lot of women in this country uh, who are very nervous and very concerned about what's happened and and some who have been directly affected uh, by what has happened. And in that context, what do politicians do except demand answers and demand for people to be held uh, accountable? So it is a very fine line. And of course, uh, any politician uh, uh, who would seek to explore this for political gain, that's on them, that's on their conscience. But at the same time, uh, I think most people would expect their politicians to do something about this. Terry, you were the one who brought it up, I suppose, mm. a, a moment ago. I cut across to you. The, the, the Oireachtas committees, do they, do they as... as Larry, right, like, you know, that there's going to be an element of politics when there's politicians involved, but this is a, this is a way of, of getting the issues out there and getting answers to questions. Even if, even if they've answered ten times, they've got an answer. No, some of the committees in the last 20 years have done tremendous work. I would figure that it is an astonishing thing that none of them ever want to be trained in how to ask questions that will actually get answers. Mm -hmm. And I suspect it is a skill that they don't want because some of them do better from just shouting and making speeches and attaching an irrelevant question mark to the end of the speech and implying that the victim on the other side must answer. Uh, Sometimes Oireachtas committees fall in love with particular witnesses in a way that a judge doing an inquiry, for example, does not, that there is much more 
um, balance and impartiality when a judge is doing it. And also there are some behaviours that I think are unjust in that people have no right not to appear before some of these committees and yet members of the committee can listen to a statement which is provable, which is fact, which is evidenced and at the end of it as they move on to somebody else say, I simply don't believe you. And nowhere else would you be allowed to do that. Would you have the right to pull in witnesses, listen to what they say and then without any evidence say, I simply think you're a liar. And I think there are injustices there that need to be examined by some of the very good people who are chairing and vice-chairing some of the committees. It's not a phenomenon that's unique to committees either because we get the same thing now increasingly in leaders' questions where, Mm. for example, for the last three weeks, effectively the only thing raised at leaders' questions has been cervical check every day Mm. by every person Mm. standing up with only a few small exceptions. But what you get is that instead of Micheál Martin uh, standing up and asking one question and Leo Varadkar offering an answer and then that being taken up by Mary Lou MacDonald or whoever it might be, what we ultimately find is that they effectively start the conversation anew and it's not necessarily because they're trying to get their faces on the nine o'clock news or because they're in a competition to be the voice of righteous anger. It's actually because the way that which they do their marketing now is that they throw a video of themselves asking the question up on Facebook. And if you're the 10th person at the Public Accounts Committee who is asking uh, Tony O'Brien, should he be stepping down? You can't just say, well, as my nine colleagues have said, it, the, the bit that's going to be digested by your Facebook followers is only this discrete three minutes. So you have to pretend as if nobody else has ever brought the question up and you have to then say, even though you're probably the last person in the queue, you have to sit down and say, Mr. O'Brien, we're here under very awful circumstances and I think you guys have some real questions to answer and you need to look very long at yourselves in the mirror as if no one else has brought it up because that's the, the bite-sized, discreet way in which people will digest the outcomes and they're playing to the gallery, but the gallery is actually the people who have liked the page on Facebook or Twitter and not the gallery who are sitting at home watching the news at night time. Before we move on uh, from this, there's a piece on page two of the Sunday Times from Justine McCarthy, no attempt to, made to audit bowel screening process, um, which is... Uh, it's an interesting story, Terry. Uh, bowel screening is Ireland, one of Ireland's most deadly cancers, about 2,500 diagnoses every year and 1,000 deaths. Uh, there has been no screening. So in other words, when someone contracts bowel cancer, there's no attempt to go back and, and audit to see if, you know, if a previous screen could have shown up uh, this cancer. It, it seems strange that while there's audits for others, there isn't an audit for this. Yeah, um, Justine's story, I think, includes um, a, a comment from the chief medical officer of the department, that's Tony Holohan, mm. Dr. Tony Holohan, effectively saying, I think I'm quoting him right, the service is too young to be audited. It's only in place for years, so it wouldn't have um, a sufficient corpus of evidence and tests done to examine the tests. You must remember that an audit is not doing the work itself. An audit is taking an overview on how well the work is being done. And Holohan is saying it's just not in business long enough to do that. Once it is in business long enough and once the audits do start to take place, there will inevitably be cases because there's always going to be uh, false positives or false negatives. the, the the fallout from this is it not going to be such that you're going to have a, a likely repeat of the situation? And what I'm talking about, so maybe I'm not <laughs> explaining this clearly. 
this memo from the HSE that was released last Thursday that there was, you know, such disgust over about, you know, stop all correspondence, don't send any more letters um, in relation to cervical check. The, the, really, the memo was, it was obvious that they were concerned, that their primary concern wasn't with patients or with patient care or with information. It was with how the story was going to be interpreted and how it was going to be digested. And then you see comments from the likes of politicians and policymakers and people in power. Mary Lou MacDonald herself, we've mentioned her, talked about how women's lives were put in jeopardy, the implication being that an actual diagnosis was withheld in cases which is not the case, no. absolutely not the no. case. And is it not, I suppose, this is a very long-winded way of asking, has the, is the whole experience of the last couple of weeks not going to be when they get to auditing bowel screen uh, and there will inevitably be cases whereby Kieran Cody, he has contracted bowel cancer, they look back at his, his previous screen and, oh God, there actually was uh, early indications here and we missed it, that you're likely to have a repeat situation whereby there will be mass panic within the HSE or whoever it is in terms of communicating that information because they know how it will be interpreted or how it will be played by the media and by politicians. No, the mass panic, which has been exacerbated by both the coverage and the Oireachtas Committee management of this issue, because people are more confused now and believe that because of the audit, women are dying um, because it wasn't communicated to them, mm. which, as you said, is simply not the truth. That didn't need to happen and it trails back like crumbs in a fairy tale to the then head of uh, cervical check two interviews that she did which were lethal and neither of them needed to be lethal if if it was explained in simple understandable terms at that stage none of this would have happened literally none of it would have happened going forward to the situation where you're looking at now the issue with bowel uh, screening mm. it would be vital in my view that anybody who goes to bowel screening or cervical cancer from now on is surrounded by posters and gets leaflets and gets a follow-up social media contact that says, look, we regularly audit this service. We do it in your interest and to improve it. Tell us whether you want to know the results as they affect you. And people need to be almost harassed every year so that they refresh their willingness to be told because otherwise you get this thing of, I've been disrespected, I've been traumatized, I wasn't expecting. So people need to be trained. If places like McDonald's and Lidl and Aldi can train us into certain behaviours, shouldn't be beyond the Department of Health and the HSE. Yeah, I mean, I I think Terry touches on something that from a public health perspective might be the most worrying aspect of the fallout from all this. And it's something I've heard uh, not a few people say in a, I suppose, casual fashion that they don't have faith in the process. They don't have faith in the testing. And if people walk away because of that lack of faith, that could have devastating consequences for society. On that note, we'll take a quick break. Gav, Terry and Larry are staying with me in studio. On the record. On On News Talk.
Yes, you're very welcome back to On The Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock today. With me in studio, Gavin Riley, Larry Donnelly and Terry Prone looking through today's Sunday papers. And there's a story on page three of the Sunday Independent. We want to turn our attention to now before we wrap things up. And it's from Philip Ryan, Child Mental Health Services. Now the crisis of our generation. 110 children face a year-long wait to see a psychologist. There is, uh, Gavin, unfortunately, I suppose nothing new in these waiting lists. No. Um, CAMS waiting lists are uh, all around the country. They, they vary. It's, a, it's one of these things, these awful things where there's a geographical lottery, depending on where you happen to live or where you happen to be born. Uh, it depends on the, it's the level of service that you're provided. Um, but there's such focus now on mental health and mental health awareness and, and well-being that these are kind of, I suppose, coming more to the fore, these waiting lists. And yeah. they're children really in some of the most vulnerable situations we're yeah, talking about Yeah, absolutely. Here. And there's been some high-profile cases in the last few months, and I don't want to, to cite individual ones on air, but I think, um, you know, it's become fashionable, especially for those of us who work for private broadcasters, to knock RTE, but they did a, f- a fabulous piece of public service broadcasting um, about a month or two ago, the big picture, where they were looking at uh, individual cases like this. And you'd circumstances where someone has exhibited some kind of suicidal behaviour or spoken in those terms, they're referred to CAMS, they're waiting for months or possibly up to a year to get their appointment. And of course, if that's how acutely difficult your condition is, you can't wait for those 12 months because by the time your appointment comes around, chances are that, are that you know, God forbid, but that you might have circumstances where it is too late to intervene. And it's shocking. And, and I suppose uh, it, it's always a good reminder that, you know, waiting lists, as you rightly say, are nothing new, but it's good to be reminded um, just how uh, prevalent some of these particular things are in cases that are as, as acute as this. I mean, sometimes you can become blasé about elective surgeries because they are elective, it's a niggle, it's a hip, and you can struggle on with the crutch for a time being. But for something as, as significant as this, or if you're exhibiting suicidal tendencies, you really shouldn't be waiting for weeks or months for an appointment because time is literally the most precious thing you have in those cases. Yeah, Larry, I'm struck that we're in the middle of a, a campaign and we talk about, uh, there's people talking about you know cherishing all the children of the nation equally and last year I met a teenager down in Wexford who walked out her front door uh, with the intention of taking her own life. Now, ultimately she didn't do it, but the response was to send her into A&E to spend the weekend on a trolley and then send her home with a letter to see a psychologist in a year's time. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a real example that no one can argue with, that we're failing children on this front. And when you look at, uh, as has been well documented, all the challenges that children and young people have now from things like bullying and social media and all things that uh, weren't, I suppose, as prevalent when we were younger, uh, I think it's quite extraordinary that we still have children in this situation. Uh, And again, anybody who's involved in education, uh, whether it's second level, third level, whatever, uh, we see these problems and we see young people dealing with stuff uh, that's just extraordinary and very, very hard for them. Uh, and obviously, uh, they need to be seen and they need to be cared for and they need to, uh, I suppose, be treated with respect and dignity. Uh, and we're not doing that right now. Terry, is there any hope as the economy improves we might start doing that? Hardly, that's that exactly what I was thinking of, was that I presume that this is partly the tail end of the you're not allowed to hire people thing, complicated by the fact that although on programs like this and in newspapers, We will see stories about young people in trouble with suicidal ideas. People still don't get as engaged uh, with anything to do with mental health as they do with physical health. Mm. And so it still tends to be postponed and put back. Although we do now have a minister with specific responsibility and he's doing his best 
who knows? Yeah, as I often say, we're getting good at talking about talking about mm. mental health, which isn't the same as mm. talking about mental uh, health. One one uh, byproduct, uh, just uh, as, a, as an addendum to that, that it's, it's not necessarily a case of there isn't a policy to hire these people. The policy is to recruit these people. The difficulty is that the pay and conditions and circumstances mm. and workload of these people is such that we can't actually fill the roles in the first place, which is uh, probably speaks even more worsely yeah. about the condition and health. On that note, Gavin Riley, political correspondent with TV3, Terry Prone, Chair of the Communications Clinic, and Larry Donnelly, Lawless lecture at NUIG. Thank you all very much for coming in to me this morning. Back in a moment. On the record. On, the record. On News Talk.